I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiber Fueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant You, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. I think you'll agree that one of the silver linings of our time in quarantine has been this notion to slow things down, regroup with our priorities, and get back to things in life that really matter most, our families and our health. Two of the best pieces of news to come out of this, I heard that bike sales are through the roof and more people are cooking at home than ever before, rediscovering the joy of a simple home-cooked meal. Families like mine are planting gardens in our backyards, we're baking bread, and we're hearing every day how people are using our Engine 2 cookbooks and the meal planners to plan out their family menus for the week and share in meal planning and meal prep together. I absolutely love it. Well, if you're on a quest to do more cooking at home, or if you want to increase the depth of flavor in the meals you're already cooking, this episode will whet your appetite. Ken Rubin is the Chief Culinary Officer at Ruby Online Culinary School, training people to become more creative, confident, and healthy in kitchens around the world. He and I introduce you to simple new ways to level up your cooking with tips on roasting, sauteing, and boosting the flavor of pastas, sauces, soups, and much more. Cooking doesn't have to be complicated, but it sure can be a lot of fun. My mouth was watering by the end of this show, and I'm sure that yours will too. Enjoy. Indulge me for a sec as I talk about our Plant Strong meal planner. Like you, we are making very few trips to the grocery store these days, so the ingredient search inside the meal planner is beyond helpful because I really hate to waste food, and it helps us use up what's in our fridge by finding recipes to match what we have on hand. 
This weekend, for example, we had a bunch of portobello mushrooms that we had bought for the grill, but it was way too hot to cook outside. Remember, I'm in Austin, Texas. So I searched the planner and we picked something brand new, the smoky portobello and potato quesadillas. They were so simple and we subbed Yukon Golds for the redskin potatoes and all three kids loved the barbecue dipping sauce. Plus, we used this really trick leftovers feature so we'd have extra quesadillas to pack on a picnic lunch the next day. I'm telling you, the meal planner can be an absolute lifesaver and it really helps get meals on the table quickly. Give it a try and let me know your favorites. Visit planstrong.com today and check out the meal planner. You can save $20 off the annual plan with the code HEALTHNOW, one word. Ken Rubin, welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. This is season two of the podcast, and we're really uh, focusing in this season on people that have really moved the needle in the plant-based movement and people who have uh, the heart of a hero. And uh, you, my man, uh, have the heart of a hero. You, uh, you know, you created this Ruby cooking, online cooking school. What, how many years ago was it? Well, um, I've been on the team for about eight years. I'm actually not the founder, but I've been behind um, a lot of the programs and the courses and things that people know as Ruby. Um, So yeah, I joined, I joined about eight years ago with the goal of, um, taking a lot of the content that the founders had built and turning it into what we know as courses, this thing that provides an online experience that takes them through multiple steps of learning over the course of days or months and uh, really transforms people. The idea was to take this, this concept that people thought was impossible, right? Teaching people to cook online and using um, just a lot of creativity, a lot of grit, <laughs> Uh, trial and error, and um, a lot of great students to figure out ways to deliver this sort of teaching, uh, that sort of learning um, in the environment where people are at, at, at home. And you know, yeah. we initially did it as a way to kind of level the playing field, um, give people better access, um, not have such a high barrier to entry to go to culinary school. Um, and now we know with the pandemic that a lot of people are home, yes. <laughs> obviously, and they're, they're cooking and they're realizing more than ever that, you know, maybe they have an interest in cooking, maybe they don't, but they have to cook. And cooking is really the means of production for their entire life to happen. And, um, you know, when, when we made the, the kind of commitment at Ruby that we wanted to provide quality instruction for people, for their personal, for their professional growth, for their health, um, it was in that thinking of, well, this should really be for any person, uh, anywhere, anytime, on any device, on their terms, meet them where they are. And, um, you know, knowing that success in the kitchen for people means different things, right? It's not the same for every person. Well, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's brilliant and it was so ahead of its time. And now I would imagine with everything that's, that's transpired with COVID-19, um, have you seen an uptick in people interested in the in the course? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think w overall, for sure, we see um, a lot of people interested in cooking. I think that what we do online is a little bit unique in terms of the experience that we give people. And that's a big sort of point of differentiation. People can go online and watch YouTube and, you know, the internet provides a lot of instruction for people. But what we do is a little bit different. So when people come to us, they sometimes scratch their heads because they're like, oh, is this a recipe site or is this just going to be cooking videos? And when they figure out that we're actually a supported school, we have chefs on staff, we have um, customer service, we have support, we have all these different things that are available for them. It's not just an app that you plug into and watch stuff, right? And they go, wow, well, this is really different. And that's what makes us sort of, you know, unique in that field is sure, there's a lot of websites that talk about food and cooking and health and plant-based even, but we, we really try to create um, a pathway for learning and benchmarks along the way, encouragement, support. Um, the amount that uh, I see our our faculty, our instructors, you know, give to our students, the amount of love and attention that they give is just is just yeah. wonderful. It's unique, and, and we see it come back to us because our students share their success stories and their life changing stories in some cases. Um, and that's and that's what that's what moves us. A lot of us in the team come from the chef education background, knowing that there was uh, there was a better way, a way to reach more people, and um, and use it as a tool to really help people. So we've seen a huge uptick. You know, to answer your question, it's yeah. it's been kind of um, you know in line with the number of uh, you know Instagram posts of people's. Uh, sourdough bread <laughs> or, their, or, or their one pot, you know, meal that they've made or whatever it is that we're seeing all these big, these big trends. Right. So, um, you know, people cooking at home, certainly. Uh, and also I think within our industry business, we do a lot of training for professionals. We're definitely seeing a steady interest within our hospitals, our assisted living, um, you know, anything related still to residential life where there is a population that needs to be fed and especially in a, in a health or wellness context, there's still very, very strong, strong need for that. Well, I, I can't wait to jump into uh, talking about, you know, cooking, some cooking techniques and some other things, but you just brought up sourdough bread. Uh, <laughs> so what is it about sourdough bread that is, it's breaking the internet right now? It's because people are like quarantined at home and they're wanting to tackle sourdough bread. Uh, are you baking bread every day? What, what's up? <laughs> uh, I'm baking bread, not every day, but I'm baking bread a lot. Um, I have to say, even my wife and my kids have stopped really asking for it at this point. It's kind of everywhere all the time. We're trying to actually cut, cut back a bit because you know, there's, there's other things to eat as it turns out, right? <laughs> <You're> uh, right. <laughs> uh, I think the thing that I've been watching this whole sourdough bread and some other, you know, internet phenomenon around media. It's an interest of mine as well as teaching people to cook interested in how people sort of represent these things as well. Uh, but I think the same thing that's driving the sourdough uh, phenomenon, I think is why people have found an interest in something like what we do is that people, I think ultimately um, when their world is sort of disrupted and things are, are turned upside down and some things become very, very routine, but other things become very unknown. I think people look for new rituals, new behaviors, new things that they can show some discipline or some attention or some 
process around and people define that differently for different reasons, of course, but I think it, it gives, it gives you something to do, something to look forward to, something that is on a schedule of sorts and you know, when you have success and yeah. it's, it's useful, it's shareable. Um, it's a point of conversation. It's more than just, Oh, I'm making this thing that I'm going to put over here on the counter and then eventually I'll use it. And it's a thing that I use it for that I care about. No, it's like the starter itself and the sourdough itself becomes the story. It becomes the process. It becomes why, almost why we care about it. Um, yeah. No, that's interesting. You mentioned uh, in these uncertain times, wanting to have something that's, you know, something that you're learning. It's kind of ritualistic. My, my wife, for example, uh, literally probably a month and a half ago, started a garden, right? We've been living in this place, this house for five years, never even thought about a garden. And all of a sudden she's like, I'm going to get into gardening. <laughs> and, uh, and it's great because you can see the, you know, you can see the results. They're very tangible. Um, it's very physical. It's uh, so anyway, that, that's a good analogy you just made there. When did you start your love affair with, with cooking and food and, and all that? Uh, so I, I knew I was a food person at a very, very young age. Um, you know, I started cooking family meals when I was about eight or nine, actually discovered plant-based at that age too. So my first kind of introduction to plant-based came when I was about eight years old and started cooking um, mostly vegetarian food for the family because um, it was be I was becoming interested in that. And I had uh, some world cuisine cookbooks. So I, you know, literally started when I was that young age with an interest, um, catered my own bar mitzvah. So I wound up, um, <laughs> again, super obsessed with food, um, made my own menu. We literally turned our home into a, like a, like a restaurant for the day where we took out all of the furniture and rented tables and brought them in and everything. So, awesome. um, so I've always had this kind of love affair with food and cooking. I knew from a very early age that, that would be the space I wanted to be. And I, I thought for part of my life that my path was really going to be in, in sort of medicine or health or something in that space. My father was a, was a doctor, is a doctor. And, um, you know, I was really interested in, in maybe pursuing that and wound up, um, going to college and thinking I was going to maybe do pre-med, you know, kind of take that track and study nutrition and food and that sort of thing. Wound up um, studying food anthropology and getting involved with the cultural side of food. And um, what is food and what is food anthropology? Well, so food anthropology. So we've all heard of this idea of food culture. People talk about food culture. They throw that around. They talk about um, how you are, what you eat or, these sort of broader concepts, food anthropology is the study of those notions that the relationship between food, cooking, eating, culture, um, everything embedded in that from uh, the history to the politics, um, yeah, yeah. religion, power, uh, all, all the things that give humans um, meaningful experiences as it relates to food. So my, my work in food really took a shift away from that sort of biological health um, you know, focus, which I still have an interest in and really move towards that cultural focus, kind of what, why, it, why is it that we eat certain foods? Why is it that certain foods change over time? What's the influence of, mm -hmm. um, of famine or war or 
cultural dominance on people's food. And because of that, I'm really interested in how people eat just sort of in a very basic way. And because of that extended out, it's really how, well, then how does diet happen? How does diet change? How, how is it that people develop habits and patterns and behaviors and norms and expectations around aesthetics and all these other things? So a lot of my graduate work in food anthropology actually focused on developing research methods for understanding how people learn cooking, how people learn cooking as a mode of cultural um, reproduction and uh, acquiring cultural skills, um, because cooking is a very cultural human act, of course. So because a lot of that work in anthropology had not really ever been done, I was really kind of writing new, new methods and developing new methods using um, a lot of visual type approaches, using photography and documentation um, and process and understanding the steps along the way versus just the final product and those sorts of things. But it's all about the relationships ultimately. So my, my work in food and anthropology and food still gets to touch into um, all these big questions that I love to uh, explore, you know, food systems questions, yeah. health questions, these sorts of things. Yeah. It's like an endless wormhole, isn't it? Truly. Yeah. Within food anthropology, you can have a subdiscipline that's also just one thing. It could be medical within yeah. food, or it could be just representation within food or just agriculture or just farm workers, or just, it could be something very specific within that world. Obviously those are whole entire areas for study. Anthropology is trying to put, um, you know, a larger frame around it and um, connect those dots, create the mode for analyzing those sorts of things. So pretty, pretty interesting. Fascinating. And it sounds like you've landed right where you should be uh, with your passion, with uh, doing, you know, good work and teaching people how to cook. Uh, it, it's all kind of, um, it's all come together. It sounds like in a really beautiful way. Congrats on that. Well, yeah, thank you. I think that we, we joke at Ruby that we're sort of this uh, like incognito, you know, public health tool. Yeah. We're, we're like a community service. We're, we're something for high schools, for people who are looking for job skills, who are looking to improve their health. We're sort of this interesting organization because on the, on the outside, we're a cooking school, but you know, on the inside, we're doing all these other things for people, which you know, ultimately is just helping them become their best selves, um, people who want a better job or want to do something different for their family, uh, make a change. Uh, and look, it could be something very small. It could be someone who's literally just trying to figure out like some healthier plant-based side dishes to serve their family and that's it like that's their goal or it could be someone who's like full-on committed they want to like take the plant-based professional course they want to go into being a plant-based personal chef they want to learn the whole range of skills um you know they've read the books they've watched the videos they've seen the blogs and those things are all great and they wanted something to help culminate all those different you know types of content. Um, so we, we see the whole range. We see people literally changing careers or making whatever it is they're currently doing um, a, lot, a lot more rich. Did you know blueberries are really good for dogs? 
They're rich in antioxidants, which can prevent cell damage in both canines and humans. And they're also packed with fiber, an excellent way to teach your dog to catch treats in the air. Jade is a blueberry catching machine. You know what else is good for dogs? Wild earth dog food. The high protein kibble is made from plants, not animals, and it's in total alignment with my values. Try a bag today by visiting wildearth.com and go ahead and use the code PLANTSTRONG for 40% off your first order. Let's, let's delve into, because you know, this audience is, uh, is plant strong, mm-hmm. and plant strong for the most part means we're eating a whole food, low fat, um, plant-based diet with minimal amounts of added salt, sugar, and, and oils. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this, I think there's this rightly or wrongly, there's this perception out there that you can't have depth of flavor. You can't have like mm. you know, all, uh, you know, everything you want when you're, when you're eating this way. And so I'd love to ask you, you know, without using maybe these, these, you know, the salt, the sugar, and the fat that most chefs do, mm-hmm. right? And what, oh, yeah. you, what you probably teach uh, in your Forks Over Knives class, uh, which is completely applicable to, to Engine 2, Plant Strong, what are, what are some like tricks and techniques that you would, uh, you would give to, uh, to listen, listeners out there that are wanting to level up and, and, and take their cooking to the next level? Yeah, well, I think, you know, these are techniques and tricks that I've even gone into, you know, big working kitchens and we'll show them how to do a saute without oil or a dry roasting technique. Um, and it's amazing for those guys, even those guys and girls to see, wow, that's that's nuts. Like we were yeah. kind of almost laughing at this concept before you came in. And now that I see it, this is like really cool. We know we can do something with this. I think when it comes to, um, so tell know, me, so tell me, unless you're going to go there. Yeah. So like, tell me like, wh- how am I going to, uh, how am I going to like do some of those things? Yeah. So, I mean, here, here's the thing when, when you're thinking about building flavor and you're thinking about this plant strong diet, and this is the way I cook, you know, most of my meals and I eat, I'm a big person, uh, a big like lentil person. So I eat a lot of different lentils. Lentils probably, occupy um, a third of my meals, right? It's just um, one of my beans of, of choice. And I, I, cook, I cook lentils all, all different ways. And one of the primary ways I start my lentils is just with a huge amount of, of dry sauteed onions or onions and shallots. So I'll literally take two or three pounds of onions and um, a few shallots into a large uh, saute pan um, because I'm doing so much, I'm doing actually a combination sweating and sauteing method where I'm cooking these very, very low at first and just beginning to break them down and develop some sugars. And then over time, I'm going to raise that heat and I'm going to caramelize those. And I'm going to get this entire pot of beautiful, it's going to take about 15 or 20 minutes, but beautiful, dark, caramelized, soft onions and shallots. I'm going to take that and just put it in the fridge and I'm going to use that um, in everything that I cook in terms of like a flavor base. So it just has a starting point, something like that. I'll also take things, um, in terms of flavor building, and then I'll think about layering the flavor. So if I start with that as a base, 
and I've got some spices, dried spices. So you could toast those spices, you can grind them and toast them. Um, and then you want to add other elements of flavor. So to that, if I'm making like a lentil dish with say the, the mixture of the, the onions and the shallots and then my toasted spices, to that I want to add some kind of very, very flavorful stock. So instead of just doing water, water's fine and you can still make a good soup or a good you know, lentil dish or bean dish with water, but why not make it with something that has a ton of flavor? And that can literally be something as simple as, well, I had some vegetables and I, sim I simmered them together. You could kind of raise the, the bar on that and add some herbs, add some mushrooms, add some other things that might be more, um, more acid uh, giving, like some tomato pieces. You can make a different type of uh, um, a flavor profile. You can go and do a mushroom stock. I do a lot of different mushroom stocks. It's a great way to add a, a depth of flavor, a what, darker umami flavor. You have a you have a preferred. So you, you got to let me jump in here because I got so yeah. many. For yeah, you. sorry, so I just keep talking. So <laughs> yeah, so audience, I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna be rude here with Ken because he's just got too much good stuff. So let me go back for a little bit. Yeah, talk about toasting spices so like yeah. what are some spices that you toast how long and what's the point of that yeah so when you um when you're toasting spices when you're taking spices from a whole form to a ground form and if you're um, applying just dry heat in a pan uh, to those spices either whole or ground you're essentially um bringing forth and you're changing the dynamic of the essential oils the things that give those spices character you want to be really careful when you're toasting so you don't go too far and burn those spices because that can create bitterness and off flavors and actually kind of, you know, go against the entire point of kind of gently toasting those in, in the what, first what place. Heat, what, what heat do you like? Uh, I, I use a medium heat. I just tend, tend to be very, very patient. You want to just begin to get it wafting and you want to begin to, to smell it. Of course, whole spices are going to be a little bit more forgiving than already ground spices. So the idea is just you put it into a, a pan, you're keeping it moving, um, you know, taking just a wooden spatula and moving it around, toasting it, you'll begin to actually smell it. It's the oils that are coming to the surface, beginning to kind of like vaporize and you begin to smell that. So things that I like to toast are cumin, um, coriander seed, uh, chili flakes, mm -hmm. um, you know, anything that I'm going to do in terms of like a, like a curry type of a blend. So I'll, toast, um, you know, things, you know, kind of together. So it'll be like a coriander, cumin, clove, a little bit of cinnamon. Um, you know, to that you could add some chili. You might have uh, some other kind of like aromatic things like cardamom in there. Um, it's really just a mixture of whatever it is you're trying to go for in terms of a flavor profile. But even if I'm just making like, um, like a black bean dish, right? I can take the same concept and do like toasted cumin, toasted chili and garlic and onion, and then do black beans and amazing, right? So just build yeah. the flavor because if you're not adding the flavor, you're never going to be the recipient to the flavor. So I always tell people in this case, you're looking for all those different layers. You're looking for like the aromatics, you're looking for pungency with spices, one of my tricks when I do, especially bean and kind of earthy, you know, naturally more earthy type dishes, you know, or base dishes like 
like beans, um, finishing with acid is a great mm. trick. It's one of these things that um, people, when they start doing it at home, go, wow, now this tastes like restaurant food or whatever. But, um, you know, using citrus is wonderful. So lemon, uh, lime, uh, key lime, Meyer lemon, uh, even things like orange sometimes, a little more sweet, but certainly um, has that acid. Uh, reduce vinegars or vinegars in general, but with it, I like. So with, with the citrus, do you like the juice? Do you like the zest? Do you like both? Both, yeah. So I'll usually do, great question. I'll usually do if I'm finishing with acid. So say I'm making a lentil dish and I've got these beautiful, you know, toasted spices and maybe I fold in at the end some some collard greens or some mustard greens or something just to kind of finish those. And that's just kind of the way that's most of my lunches are basically probably like a, a bowl of lentils with some side of a, some sort of a green vegetable quickly folded in towards the end. And then usually some kind of a sauce, a chili sauce or a condiment on, on, yeah. on top of that. Um, so, you know, when it comes to lemon or lime juice that I would finish that with, I would just squeeze lemon or lime right on top. If I still had any zest left on that, I would definitely give it a, a shot of zest, but I tend to use a lot of those things. Like I made a um, uh, arugula walnut pesto the other night that um, was just basically like a, like a, a lot of walnuts, um, arugula, a lot of lemon juice, uh, some reduced stock just to kind of help spin it a little bit. And, um, you know, it just wanted more, more lemon and lemon zest on top of that just all day. Any pesto in there or no? Just arugula, walnuts, and, and then the lemon. And lemon. Yeah, yeah. So that's all it needs. Just super, super simple. The walnuts give it the, the texture and the fattiness component and those sorts of things. Yeah. So uh, let's go back. You were talking about uh, some stocks. You mentioned the, the mushrooms for the umami uh, yeah. in the flavor. Do you have a, a preference when it comes to mushrooms? Because it seems like mushrooms are the, kind of the rage right now. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, mushrooms are amazing. You know, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of mushrooms in lots of different, you know, contexts in terms of like drinking the stock as like a beverage or using the stock for cooking grains, um, grilling and pressing mushrooms. is another great technique. Yeah. Grinding mushrooms up and using them for fillings and things is amazing. Um, they're great. Uh, all around sort of product. Um, I would say when it comes to stocks, mushroom stocks, you know, I just, I have a bag in my freezer where I keep, you know, odds and ends, mushroom pieces, um, yeah. stems, mushrooms that I felt like maybe were going a little bit old that I just chopped up and um, just, you know, froze things that I can quickly, when I want to put together a stock, uh, put together a stock, but I also fortify my mushroom stocks with really good, <laughs> dried porcini and I'll usually have chanterelles and some leftover things from foraging here. And, um, you know, I find that a nice base of just button mushrooms and, you know, kind of more standard mushrooms, um, dried shiitake. But then if you can add uh, some other mushrooms, you can get a really amazing kind of like symphony of, of mushroom flavors. I'll say that some of the mushrooms, um, especially things like, like shiitake can be really strong. So if you want to introduce some of the more nuanced flavors, you know, yeah. shiitake wouldn't be the one to to lay it on top of that. But like a shiitake mushroom broth in itself with some seaweed and, uh, you know, just um, 
you know, lots of kind of roasted shallots in there is, is pretty spectacular. Throw a little bit of ginger in there. You can make a, just an amazingly deep scented mushroom, you know, stock. Um, that's just got a beautiful color. You can make like, make like a risotto with it, put mushrooms in it. It's just going to be this wow. luscious, dark, you know, it's just going to be like umami bomb, delicious. That sounds insane. You know, you, you mentioned uh, hunting for chanterelles there in, in Portland. When I was there in 2012, I've got a cousin that lives in Portland. We went hunting okay. for, for chanterelles and we found them. They are, whew, they're magnificent. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, we, we have uh, the ability here to go out and find just amazing mushrooms. Um, chanterelles right now, we're in the spring morel season here. Um, you know, there's certain places you can get lobster mushrooms, uh, maitakes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just spectacular. They are, um, amazing. There's just the, the texture <laughs> and the various things that you can do. Um, you know, one of the things I've done with mushrooms that I find also really, really fun is you can, you can take like a, like a maitake mushroom, uh, or one of those mushrooms that just you know, kind of has those various textures, even like a, an oyster mushroom cluster, um, you know, take it and you can uh, soak it. I even sometimes will soak it in like a mushroom stock that I've made and let it actually swell and kind of marinate and absorb some water. You usually don't think about wanting to do that with mushrooms and give it a, give it kind of a soak. Um, and then you can do any number of things with it where you can kind of grill it or press it on a hot pan and then soak it again, let it like suck up some of that moisture. And then, you know, anything goes with that. You want to put it, slice it super thin, put it in a taco, uh, chop it up onto uh, a pasta dish or a baked dish. It's just spectacular. Or just cube it, put it into soup at that point. But the effect of like high heat, um, letting it absorb, you know, some additional flavors, these sorts of things just make mushrooms really kind of wacky, magical things. Yeah. It's funny, I've never been a huge fan of mushrooms. Um, for some, some reason, like I don't like eggplant. Mm -hmm. I don't like different squashes. I think it's something about that texture. The right? texture, yeah. And a lot of the mushrooms are this, have that a very similar texture to me. Mm -hmm. But if the mushroom is prepared properly, and I think you mentioned earlier, if you press it and grill it, and you really like get all the moisture out of it, yeah. now, now you're talking my language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get you. Mushrooms, if they're just too big or the pieces are big or they're cooked in a moist environment, can be like kind of slimy feeling, not something you want to crunch down on or something like that. So um, having those having those kind of crispy bits and those those pieces are going to be a lot, you know, a lot, a lot nicer. I, I also just love using mushrooms ground up in different applications. They're great. I'll do fillings for, for ravioli and other things like that just using like tons and tons of mushrooms. And it's amazing how much you can put in the little- say, You say uh, you're like grinding up mushrooms. What does that mean? Like how do you grind a mushroom up? Yeah, so I'll just take a bunch of mushrooms. I'll either dry roast them or dry saute them with a lot of shallots, maybe some thyme, some garlic, and then just put them in like a Cuisinart. So just pulse oh. them in like a food processor and literally grind them up almost like you're making hummus. Right. And you get like a paste. It's almost like something you could almost, it's got some texture to it, but you can definitely scoop it with a spoon and that inside of like a long filled pasta or layered, 
like with like tortillas and like a casserole type of a thing, even make like mushroom enchiladas. I mean, they're just amazing. You can get a lot of different flavors. Yeah. You can also use it to press out a lot of the moisture. So if that ground mixture is too wet for you, just put it back into the sheet pan or the saute pan, yeah. let it just evaporate more, more liquid off. What, um, so last, last night I, I, I wanted to add a little like, you know, kick and kind of umame to our uh, pasta sauce. We just had some, some pasta. And so I, I took maybe two handfuls of walnuts, toasted them just for, you know, a couple minutes, threw them in the Cuisinart, right? Just for, uh, I'm sorry, not the Cuisinart, just the, um, what's that fast, fast speed blender called again? <laughs> I'm the Vitamix? Vitamix, yeah. Vitamix, the Vitamix yeah. Did a couple pulses, put them in the, um, uh, put them in the iron skillet, and then I just threw in, you know, turmeric, chili, cumin, all these, right, stirred it up. And it was like, basically, it was like walnut, m walnut meat. Yeah. And then just put that in with the, with the, um, with the, the marinara, the sauce. It was insane. It was insane. I bet. And my point is, so you can do the exact same thing with, with mushrooms, yes? 100%, yeah. In fact, you can do walnut and mushroom together as a mix. Oh, and even probably make them into little balls and bake those separately. They might break apart a little bit, but you might even create a little bit of a cluster together with that. Wow. Super uh, okay. easy, right? So, all right, so let's go back. So we're talking about what you can do to add depth of flavor, right? Yeah. When, when you're cooking this way. Uh, yeah. You just, you talked about onions, you talked about, you know, uh, uh, some, some stocks, some mushrooms. Uh, what about roasting? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one of the things about dry heat cooking, and I'll put, you know, dry saute and dry roast, that's probably the main two techniques, even though there's a lot of variation, a lot of nuance with them, those are the main two techniques that I'll point to. When you're talking about dry heat cooking versus moist heat cooking, and this is just a little bit of chef geek speak here for just a second. Um, dry heat is a... Um, approach to cooking where you're essentially bringing moisture out of a product and you're using a dry heat approach so that moisture is removed and you're concentrating flavors. So roasting, imagine just roasting is just like dehydrating, but like on steroids. It's just a lot warmer way of, of kind of dehydrating something and it creates color and crispiness and the Maillard effect and all these different chemical reactions that make it actually taste different. Um, so that's different than moist cooking, which is like you're simmering and you're steaming and these other things, which are actually surrounding with moisture and putting moisture in, right? So the idea here is that if you're trying to concentrate and um, create more depth of flavor, that these dry heat cooking techniques are very, very effective. It's almost like the flavor shift in going from a grape to a raisin. You go, wow, all that depth. And you want to find the right balance in there, right? So I love the dry heat cooking methods for that reason, because they are concentrating in flavor. And for people who are looking for more flavor, that's the way you're gonna get there. It's not through steaming, it's through roasting. Um, so I love the technique of roasting. I oftentimes tell people, if you're looking to do something like even in a saute pan that you would have conventionally done with oil in a saute pan, um, like try roasting it just on a sheet pan, very, very high heat with some parchment paper, because then you're surrounding it with heat and you're still getting conduction from the bottom of, of, of the pan. 
So I do a lot of dry roasted vegetables, cauliflower, broccoli, sweet potatoes, um, carrots, onions, these sorts of things. Brussels sprouts, sprouts, of course. (laughs) Um, And for me, it's it's about having, um, you know, not crowding the pan. Because again, if there's too many vegetables, too close together. Yeah, if there's if there's if they're overlapping, if they're too close together, if they're touching each other too much, what yeah. you're doing essentially is creating an environment that is leaning towards the moist heat. It's oh. creating a lot of steam. That steam is all circulating in the same space. Especially if they're overlapping, you're never having direct dry heat, you know, convection currents touching the surface of that. They're never going to get brown and crispy never going to get the Maillard effect. It's never going to have that flavor that you're going for. What's so the, what's the Maillard effect? You can't so, just throw that out there. Yeah. So people, people talk about car- caramelizing and oftentimes what they mean when they say caramelizing is they mean this browning reaction called the Maillard reaction or the Maillard effect, which is technically not really caramelizing. You get, you get Maillard, um, in cases where you have lower temperature browning reactions, it's like toasting bread is right. Maillard, right? You're not caramelizing the bread, you're just toasting it. And that's the Maillard reaction. And that's the thing that gives things a toastiness and nuttiness a depth. And you want that on your roasted carrots. You don't want your carrots to basically be steaming in your oven. That's just steam yeah. them if you're gonna do that, right? So you get that by having the surface of those vegetables wick away moisture and become dry so that you can get to the temperature needed to get the Maillard reaction. And different um, carbohydrate or sugar and protein um, kind of you know mixtures will give you different temperatures at which that happens. So it's kind of a composite of how much moisture, how much carb and how much protein is in that product. Um, so cruciferous will do it slightly different than a carrot, let's say. So can I can I can I just make sure I got this right? So when I think of roasting, right, I, I think of you know you put it on like a cookie sheet with mm-hmm. the parchment paper and put on your your vegetables, put it in the oven, what four hundred degrees? Yeah, like hotter, 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 <laughs> four fifty, right? You like broil? Well, what? I like if I'm doing larger vegetables, um, yeah. I'll go slower. But for small little bite size dry roasting. I like to go really hot. I like to go 425 or 450, or if it's convection, maybe 400, because you get some effective, more effective cooking with with the convection, with the fan. Um, Yeah, so yeah, you're roasting. You're looking for for coloration. You're looking for crispy edges and some browning and a shifting in that color. But when you mentioned then earlier about try it in a a pan, uh, you know, with parchment paper, you mean like on a stovetop or you mean in, in the oven? Yeah, in, in the oven, yeah. So yeah, okay. like the example, Rip, I was talking about there was I have a lot of people who are trying to do like no oil hash browns. Yep. Right. Yep. So they're taking like a, taking a potato, they're cutting it into little tiny cubes and then putting it to a stainless steel pan and it just sticks. Bad. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because of the starchiness of the potatoes, because of how much surface area because of a hundred reasons, those potatoes are not going to be the best option in a pan. Yep. I would just take those potatoes, um, put them on a sheet pan with some parchment paper and blast them in a hot convection oven at 425 or 450. Because you have you know, conductive heat from the bottom and convection currents surrounding it, 
you're going to get 365 cooking, <laughs> you know, it's going to be a much different thing, right? So it's it's a different uh, it's a different well, you know, uh, equation, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we love potatoes. Every potato imaginable. Love hash brown potatoes. One of the things that we've started to do at our family, and I learned this from my sister Jane, we take the hash brown potatoes and you throw them in a panini, a panini maker, right? Oh yeah. Now, and then they uh, they turn out great, and they typically you know come out come off pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Cool, cool little trick. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, wow. I, I, I uh, okay. So what else? What else? What are some other ways that we can like uh, bring up the depth of, of flavor? Yeah. So I, you know, I talked about technique. So the roasting technique, the dry techniques, which are um, concentrating in flavors, right? They build depth. Um, I think acid again is really, really key. Balancing acid and understanding the role that acid plays, especially when you have um, a need to kind of lift flavors. So a lot of the foods that I tend to eat are in that root vegetable bean, you know, probably a lot of the same things that you're eating on a, on a pretty yeah. regular basis. And I find that they really do benefit from, from acid. So I love keeping different vinegars. Um, I have a lot of citrus that I like to use, the zest and the juice, of course. Um, but my, my vinegars are also really interesting. I find um, I make a lot of, you know, you call them vinaigrettes or dressings, whatever you want, but I even use lentils or legumes in those as a mode of thickening, um, which is a great, a great trick. I'm not sure, Rip, if you've ever seen some of those approaches where you can just, you know, basically like um, emulsify with, with lentils versus using any oil whatsoever. It's a great um, way to use, in some cases, maybe overcooked lentils or overcooked beans because you can, um, take, you know, mushy, too soft beans and use it in that context. Um, but also like leftover hummus. It's a great way to use an extra few tablespoons of leftover hummus. So you, so you take the, let's just say the lentils or the beans, you put them in a bowl along with some of your, your vinegar and then you, and then you stir that up. Is that what you're saying? Uh, in like a Vitamix. Yeah. So I'll actually use the lentils or the beans to help emulsify mm-hmm. and make a thicker dressing. So, can, can, all right, dressings. Dressings, yeah. one of the most important things, right, to me, to, to make to make this this lifestyle work. You, yeah. Do you have some go-tos? Talk to, talk to me about dressings. Yeah, dressings, sauces. I mean, I think it's all about, like, things that coat vegetables, things that you can add to a, a pilaf or a, a bowl of something. So the, the idea of dressings, it's sort of this um, – there's like a continuum, I guess, between the dressings and the sauces and the salsas and all these yeah. different things. Um, but I, I use them um, all the time, different sorts of things. Some I'll make more acidic and have the application in mind, say for salad greens or for uh, steamed veggies. And I love using, um, you know, the ground up lentils. So I'll take like red lentils that are already cooked um, or white beans already cooked, or I mentioned like it's a great way to take a few leftover tablespoons of extra hummus that you have and actually turn it into something that you can say, great, now I have a dressing using this extra hummus. Um, but it's a great it's a great approach, I think, just to have a variety of 
different sorts of classes of dressings or sauces uh, in your back pocket. I have a few. I have kind of the the Middle Eastern version, which has some tahini, typically uh, white beans or chickpea, um, lots and lots of lemon, lots of herbs. Um, the herbs can kind of go various directions. It can go more towards like a dill and green onion, or it can go kind of more parsley, cilantro, mint. So either way on that. Um, I have a, a dressing base, which is really just kind of like a thin salsa that I like a lot, which is red onion, uh, tomato, uh, apple cider vinegar, lots and lots of garlic and cilantro. And that just gets kind of spun again into, um, it's kind of a salsa, but you make it thin and more kind of vinegary. What would, and it's just, what would, what would that go well on? Uh, I put that on like cooked grains. So I'll pour that on like, um, you know, spelt or wheat berries or barley or brown rice or anything like that. That's kind of got a little bit more of a, a bite to it. Um, yeah. What was that? Faro. Faro. Yeah, absolutely. All those, all those sorts of things. It's just also great, you know, on greens. So if you, I eat a lot of tacos. So my tacos are often heavily saladed on top. So it makes a great combination also on those greens. Yeah. So you're kind of eating this fresh, you know, black bean taco with just, you know, a big mouthful of salad with it. Um, but yeah, just, just delicious. That's one of our, our easy ones because you can take that <laughs> and if you want to, um, you know, use it to even turn it to something else, you could take that base and use it in like a, a baked enchilada sort of a thing, or use it to coat roasted vegetables. If you want to go a certain direction on flavor those sorts of things. Man. So do you, I mean, I know you just, you just spouted off a couple, but do you personally have a favorite go-to dressing that you make more than anything else? Gosh, I don't. I feel like I change them up all the time. <laughs> um, that's, that's maybe why you, you do what you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much of how I cook is like the, the my approach is oftentimes just like what's in front of me. Right. What do I have time for? What do I know I'm not going to recreate tomorrow or the next day? So let's mix it up a little bit. All right, give, give me a favor. Give me, give us, give us the ingredients for a kick-ass salad dressing that takes less than three minutes to make. Okay, so here we go. Let's let's just do a, a really nice, I would say, kind of uh, basic, quote, creamy dressing. Oh my god! Is, yeah, so we're gonna take. Um, uh, a small amount, we'll call it a quarter cup of white beans. Again, it all depends on how much you're making, but let's call it a quarter cup of white beans that have been cooked. Yep. And take a half an avocado. Oh, yeah. Okay. A nice big handful of uh, cilantro leaves. So like a third of a bunch of cilantro, like a, a bunch. Yep. A small shallot or a piece of red onion. A little bit of veggie stock. Yep. And then just give it a whirl. Wow. All and right. then for acid, you can go any direction. I like using either sherry vinegar or lemon or both. Yep. And uh, just to adjust your acid. But the, the avocado and the white bean together make an incredibly luxurious, yeah. unctuous, you know, just flavorful kind of, you know, hit, hits your mouth really, really nicely. I'm making that tonight. Making that tonight, my mate. And the cilantro, you know, depending on how you like it, that can be completely spun and incorporated and basically just make it super green, or that can be more coarse. People like it different ways. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you spin it, you know, completely, you can make that white bean avocado like a bright green paste, right? Which is which is pretty attractive, you know, when you when you put it on things. So, All right? Would it would it be too much of me to ask you to now give us a um, give us a recipe, a pasta sauce? Can you give us a like three to four minute pasta sauce that we can make? Well, I think the uh, the arugula pesto that I did the other night with walnuts, I think yes. would be a, yes. would be a, a killer one. So um, give, give that quantities, give us some. What's quantity. that? Yeah. So let me because uh, again, I was just using my hands, <laughs> filling up filling up the machine. So um, I would well, say about a, a cup of toasted walnuts. You can just toast those in your in yep. your toaster oven. Yeah. Um, about a half a cup of veggie stock. Yeah about a half a pound of um, arugula. Yeah. Uh, juice of one lemon and zest. Black pepper. And then the secret ingredient, a little bit of mace. Mace. Yes. Is that corn? <laughs> no, mace is... Um, mace is the Spanish word for corn, isn't it? <laughs> maize, yeah. Well, maize. mace, this is, this is an ingredient that is uncommon. Um, you know, nutmeg will also be could could be used. It's a slightly different flavor. Mace yeah. is the exterior um, hull on on nutmeg. Okay, and it has a a little bit different flavor than nutmeg for sure. It has more of kind of a savory flavor, yeah. Yeah. Um, and similar. And I just find it goes well with vegetables. It's one of those secret ingredients you see in a lot of spice mixes and things. People don't really know what it is. But a little bit of mace or a little bit of nutmeg, black pepper. All right, man, I, I made a fool of myself there. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. it's a it's a spice that a lot of people associate only with like baking, but it actually has some interesting use when you use it with, um, I would say like highly aromatic herbs, things like oregano, marjoram, rosemary, yeah. and also really kind of those pungent you know, greens. So things like arugula, uh, mustard greens, things, things in that, in that category. Uh, so one of the things that we really like to power down every day are green leafies, right? They're, I mean, they're just such a nutritional powerhouse, as you know, and um, we're just now starting to learn that one of the, the best sources of nitric oxide, uh, which can really help, uh, build up your defenses against COVID-19 are green leafies. And, and uh, on my father's program, on my seven-day rescue program, where we're really trying to turn people's health around quickly, we recommend five to six servings of green leafies a day, awesome. a serving being about a fistful. I would love to know what are some ways, techniques that you can give to our listeners as far as cooking, sauteing, roasting, you know, green leafies to, to really make them palatable. Um, obviously sauces go a long way with green leafies, but any, yeah. any, anything that you can say on that. Yeah. I think like, you know, one example going back to the pesto had, there's a ton, like that's a large bag of greens yeah. in, in a pretty small amount of pesto when it's all said and done. So that's an amazing way. And that's just raw, fresh. You're not blanching. You're not doing anything to that. It's getting warmed through when you're tossing it with pasta or grains or whatever you're, you're putting it with. So that's, that's, that's one, one great approach. It's amazing to see that whole bag just, you know, when you put it in yeah. the Cuisinart, just get completely ground down. 
the thing that I do on a pretty regular basis, I would say probably my main way I get migraines, um, I would say is by kind of melting it into my existing soups and stews and things. So you know, I don't, I don't know that I eat lentils many times a week without having some sort of a, a green folded into it. Either something that I had previously cooked the day before or something that I just do kind of on the spot when I'm reheating my, my lentils. So I've just got some red, simple, you know, red lentils simmering. I can just take a, a big handful of chopped up mustards or collards or kale or spinach or whatever, yeah. know, bok choy, whatever it is. And just for the last two minutes of cooking, just kind of wilt them down, fold them in. And it becomes just number one, a way to differentiate what I made from the day before, because maybe I did some other thing, but then, you know, it's, it's getting those vegetables. I can really control the cooking time. A lot of those greens, even kind of a heartier ones rip, I, I like to have the texture of them. So I know a lot of people will take collards and cook them for, you know, 30, 40 minutes, but I still love them with that bite, right. Just after like a minute or, or, or two, um, especially if they're, if they're chopped up small, I don't have to sit there. And, what do you, so what do you, how would you cook those then for a minute or two? Would you just, yeah, uh, just simmer it, like simmer it with my, with my lentils or add them, like I'll add my mustards oh, to my, to my white beans. So I got you. So you fold yeah. them in, you fold them in at the very, very end. Completely. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm eating a, like a standard lunch for me, it might be some, some quinoa with some black beans and when I'm heating up the black beans on my stovetop, I'll just literally go in the fridge and be like, well, I have um, a, some spinach. I'm going to take a few bits of spinach and put it in the black beans. And just when they're heating, just use that same matrix to warm them up. And then I just have black beans with some spinach laced right. through it. Right. What about, and, so do you like, do you like yeah. to uh, saute like kale, collards, uh, beet greens? What, what, what's your preference there? Yeah, I think sauteing is great. Um, it's a, obviously a wonderful technique when I'm doing the, the saute method. I really love to have my, my aromatics very, very high. So I love having a lot of sliced shallots. Shallots are great. People are kind of scared of shallots. They don't know what they are. They feel like they're funny onions, but the flavor, the flavor that you get out of a shallot is so delicate and, and delicious and has a lot of the qualities people want between onion and garlic. Um, so I always just recommend for people like, yeah, just try it. Like it's just another vegetable that has another flavor. Just go for it. You don't have to be scared of it. Yeah. Um, but shallots for me are just a, a wonderful aromatic base. Um, you know, using, uh, uh, stalks or stalks that have been kind of reduced a little bit is a great way to add a little bit more flavor or depth of flavor, but oftentimes it'll, I'll be super, super simple with it. It'll just be uh, the, the greens and the aromatics. And if I want to add some, some other flavorings, whether it's some chili flake or some mm -hmm. splash of lemon juice, things like that work really, really well. Um, I'll just kind of finish it with that. Yeah. I do love some of the heartier greens like collards and, and mustards. I do love um, treatment with additional acid. So I find that some of those greens can get a splash of vinegar or um, cooked with vinegar even and get that acidic component um, to help balance out the flavor. The you know, bitterness plus acidity ha has a kind of a rounding effect. Yeah. Um, and if you add pungency like chili, um, it creates a really interesting kind of triad um, of flavor that people go, wow, that's really interesting. That's really complex. Bitter on its own 
is very one note, very kind of like one dimensional, it hits you. But if you can round out that bitterness with those other things, um, people find it, you know, very, very pleasing. That's sort of the basis of like, of mole, like the classic Mexican dish mole. There's bitterness in it, but it has these other things that round it out. Um, and I'll do a, a plant-based mole and just serve it with black beans. That's just a delicious, delicious meal right there. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about oats. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I think in another life I might've been a horse. Uh, <laughs> I, I love oats. Um, but the one, you know, I love steel cut oats. I love old fashioned oats. Uh, I haven't had much experience with the oat groats. Um, what, what's your opinion on, on oats and, and all those different varieties? Yeah, there's so many different ways to process the oat, obviously. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the steel cut or the, um, you know, the Irish cut or the Scottish, you know, I'm just right down the street from Bob's Red Mill uh, world, oh, yeah. world headquarters. <laughs> so they're obviously known for their oatmeal and Bob himself um, is a big oatmeal person. And um, like for real up until fairly recently was actually still cooking oatmeal for his employees um, at the headquarters, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty wild. Um, but uh you know, I think for me, the whole oat groat is something that, you know, is really when you look at it, when you eat it, it's just a lot closer to eating something like farro or kamut or a wheat berry or a, a whole barley, right? That's, that's really kind of the, the category of food that you're in the territory of when you're talking about kind of the whole oat. Um, I think that for a lot of people, when they're craving that kind of richer, more textured experience. They're going for a steel cut or like a Scottish cut or something like that, where there's still texture and still a piece of the whole grain intact, but it's not the entirety of the grain with the, you know, the germ and the bran and the husk and everything kind of attached still. Um, I, I tend to like those sorts of things though. I tend to like those those whole grains. I love, you know, wheat berries and farro and yeah. making cold salads out of those because of the texture. So it's not, um, it's not off-putting to me. It's just something I think when people think oats, they don't necessarily think that um, in, in, the, in the first instance. Yeah. Uh, what, what you mentioned, what's the difference between an, an Irish oat and a, uh, and a Scottish oat? <laughs> you know, I've, I've oftentimes asked myself that same question. I think it's just the size of the cut. I think it's a yeah. similar, similar cut. It's almost probably like splitting hairs. There's probably um, people who spend their lives like delineating what, what the difference is. But I think it's just the size, literally the size of the cut after the, the oat's been broken apart. So, um, yeah, you know, it could be that the Scottish just is a slight, slight bit coarser than the than the uh, the uh, Irish. It's almost like the difference between some of the the rolled oats and then the thick rolled oats. Where you're like, well, how much? Yeah, how much thicker is it? Is it just you know three microns thicker or whatever? <laughs> I love the extra thick rolled oat. I really do. Yeah, the Bob's Red Mill extra thick. Yep, that's the one I always buy. Spectacular. Yep, I'm with you. Yep. Um, you've talked a lot about lentils here. You have a favorite lentil, red, yellow, brown. Oh gosh. Yeah. My nickname is, you know, hashtag Kentle is what they call me here sometimes. So, um, yeah, the joke is like, what's, what's in the bowl. Um, I would say I, I really, if I had to pick a lentil, it'd be really tough for me. I would say a lot of the time 
more recently, I'm going for for red lentils. Um, I love those quick, really quick. Yeah, like, they're fast. Yeah. They they break down. Their texture breaks down. It becomes kind of creamier. Yeah. Um, which you know you can you could offset by just watching your cooking times. But I've been on a little bit of a jag doing um, Ethiopian style red lentils. That's been a little bit of a of a of a hang up for me the last the last few months. Let me ask you, if, if I wanted to go home tonight and I wanted to make a red lentil dish for dinner, how would I do it? What, what should I do? Yeah, well, I would take that same, you know, dry saute garlic onion mixture that I referenced earlier. So just, you know, develop some nice color, some flavor with just a whole lot of onions and garlic. Use about a half a cup to a cup of that, depending on how much you're making. Yeah. And um, I would just, I mean, I would start really simple. It can be something as, as easy as just lentils with the, with the aromatics and some beautiful stock. Um, you know, you could fold, like what I do, fold in greens to finish. Uh, my Ethiopian red lentil dish is something I just, I'm really, really uh, fixed on that for the, for the moment. So that's just uh, onions and garlic and ginger that yep. you can just, you know, dry, dry saute, um, add a little bit of stock and simmer it, um, and then add your, your uh, beriberi seasoning and your red lentils. And then your, I usually use a pretty light vegetable stock because the, the spice mixture is so um, aggressive. Yep. And, um, you know, finish that with, with black pepper and, um, and so how to have some some acid on it. That's just an amazing thing. That goes great with with collards that you can slow cook uh, using just a little bit of turmeric and some ginger and some garlic and some black pepper. Um, the two of those together is just well, okay. Amazing. That's what I'm having. That's what I'm having for dinner tonight. And how long will that take me? You think uh, the red lentils start to finish um, should be about 25 to 30 minutes. Again, yeah. they're pretty quick cooking. Um, the, the style of the dish is that you still want to maintain a little bit of texture on the red lentil. You don't want to make it completely paste. You want to actually be able to discern that there were, you know, in, individual lentils, um, and probably about the same for your, for your collards. Again, I'm more of a fan of the quicker cooked collards or mustards versus the real long cook. So if you get your lentils going and then move into your collards and have a, you know, 10 or 15 minute cooking time on those, you're, you're probably pretty good. Um, the main flavor profile in the collards is sort of the the ginger uh, like turmeric balance, whereas in the in in the uh, lentils you have that uh, berberi seasoning with the ginger and the onion and the garlic, and you've got the chili and the fenugreek and all the other things in that in that seasoning. So it's pretty it's pretty amazing. All right, um, I want to be uh, sensitive to our time here, so uh, I'm going to wind it down. But Lori Kordowich, right, who works on the Engine 2 team, will kill me if I don't ask you this question. <laughs> Your question for you is, how do you make an oil-free roux? Oh, great question. So, <laughs> so it's <laughs> ironic because, you know, Ruby is named after roux. Yeah. And uh, roux in the classical French kitchen is a combination of, of flour and, and fat. Um, typically, you know, in the French kitchen, butter. Um, the great thing about starches is that they don't need fat to work. 
So <laughs> um, a, a roux without fat is just basically like a, a slurry is what we would call it. It's not a, it's not a sexy term. I know that probably doesn't roll off the tongue the way people want, but the idea of making essentially a starch and liquid mixture that's used for thickening is, uh, is the idea behind kind of a no, a no oil roux. So it could be, um, any number of starches, right? So it can be flour, it can be rice flour. I use, um, masa harina for, for roux, you know, in terms of thickening to thicken up a a black bean soup. It gives a really awesome flavor to a black bean soup. If you want to just kind of thicken it up a little bit. Um, you can use arrowroot powder. You can use, you know, actual starches like potato starch or corn starch or things like that if you're comfortable using those. But it can be any 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 starch-based flour, right? And then, and then a liquid. Um, the only thing about using it is you want to make sure you add it to whatever it is you're thickening in a way that's not going to cause lumping or clumping or those sorts of things. So you're typically going to want to stir it in when it's not already at that uh, hot um, stage, you know, even near boiling, um, because you're going to have the ability potentially for that slurry to begin to cook before it's incorporated. So you want to put it in before it's say 160, 170, you know, bring it into the matrix and then raise your temperature to the simmer so it can fully activate. Yeah, that's going to be, be the way you can you can thicken something. Good. I think Lori will be very pleased. Yep. So you can still do it without the oil. Yeah. Yeah. So can you are, this is hypothetical, okay? Hypothetical. But you are 22 years old. You've just graduated from um, University of Texas at Austin. And you're, you're moving into an apartment on your own. You've got limited funds. You can, you can actually buy five different utensils, mm. five different utensils for your kitchen. Uh, and you know what you know now about cooking, all right? Okay. At the age of 22. <laughs> what are, and you've got a limited budget, let's say of 250 bucks. Okay. What are the five must-have you, you, you know, kitchen utensils that Ken is going to purchase? Um, well, the first thing is a, a, a decent knife, a decent chef knife. Right. So it doesn't need to be expensive. You can get a decent knife for probably under 50 bucks these days. And I would say just a good, a good chef knife. Yeah, uh, it could be six inch, eight inch, nine inch, whatever size chef knife you need. Um, you know, Target, great, great place to buy it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, I would say getting a good pan uh, for doing your, your no oil saute. So probably a 10 inch stainless steel skillet. It's going to be a little bit of an investment, uh, but something that's, that's going to be worth it because you're going to do a lot of your cooking in there, your sauteing, your cooking of greens, those sorts of things. Uh, a larger pot to do simmering yeah. and grains and things like that. You can spend less money. The, the make or the weight of that is not as important uh, as with a, a saute pan. Yeah. Um, gosh. So we, right now we got we got the pot, we got the pan, we got the a uh, cutting board and a knife. We got the knife. The cutting board you can get at a garage sale for a buck. So a buck. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you two more. Two. Two, two more. Two more things. Wow. Um, hmm. 
Come on, I'm putting you on the spot, baby. I know, it's really tough because I'm trying to think, do I, do I go down the route of having some device, like a blender, <laughs> no. which is really, really useful, uh, or a, a different hand tool, right? So I would say a, a blender is a really good thing. You, you're not going to get a nice high-speed blender in that wow. budget, but just even a decent blender for making dressings, for making sauces. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even just a, a hand blender, frankly, for making hummus and things like that, pureeing yeah. soups, that would be something I would I would definitely go for. And then probably like a a, a greater zester sort of a thing, um, something where you can get, uh, you know, you can grate veggies or use it maybe for zesting citrus, um, one of those box grater sort of thing maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we are in the time of COVID-19 right now, and a lot of people are watching their budget. And so uh, I, think, I think that sounds like a pretty good list. I think that <laughs> would work, work for me when I was 22. <laughs> you don't want to get too many things and certainly nothing that's going to break too easily, right? No, no. Um, well, what's, uh, so what's the most exciting thing that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with, uh, with the audience? Well, gosh, you know, there's just a ton of great things happening at Ruby. Um, two exciting things we're working on. I would say one is we um, are in the process right now of launching a new product. Um, so our founders, Joe and Don, have been busy working for the last year on a new um, plant-based learning to cook uh, sort of tool, a, a software uh, tool that we're going to be um, debuting here pretty shortly. So we're in a beta mode right now. So stay tuned about that. We're excited to, to share more um, on that. Right. Um, and the other, uh, I think, exciting news for Ruby is we're just now beginning to also work on some projects um, leveraging our learning management system. And this, this system that we built with teaching people to cook and leveraging um, the kind of back-end technology around competency and experience-based learning um, into some other fields, into healthcare um, specifically. So looking at how we can leverage some expertise that we've had around um, teaching people things you do with your body um, into the um, more formal healthcare space. So that's uh, exciting things as well that we're, um, that we're looking forward to. Nice, nice. <clears throat> it all sounds like some really smart, um, worthwhile stuff. Congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah. We well, let me are ask you this uh, trying to before, do our part. Let me ask you this before we, uh, before we shut it down. Uh, it's probably 1030 Portland time right now in the AM. What are you going to have for lunch? Uh, I've got to cook some lentils cause I finished my Ethiopian lentils yesterday. Yeah. Um, so probably going to do some, some lentils here. I'm not sure, um, which kind, but, um, Probably 80% sure if you were to put some money on it, 80% sure it's going to be lentils. So does your wife ever cook or, you, or do you do all the cooking? Uh, she does some cooking, um, but I, you know, I enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I asked the same. So I had Chad Sarno uh, on the podcast for season one and I asked him the same question and, and he basically just said how much he loves cooking. He loves giving this gift to his wife and to his kids. And uh, he says he's not burned out on it, you know, and just loves diving in there. So it sounds like you're, you're in the same, uh, same camp. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, um, it's a pleasure for me. It's something that I look forward to doing most days still a hundred percent. So 
um, you know, try to get my kids involved. My wife will cook a few, a few things a, a week. There's things that she likes to cook and things that she makes that we like to eat. Um, but you know, it's my obsession. So it's something where I think they just, they know they can walk into the kitchen. There's going to be some stuff hanging around. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, Ken, I, I really appreciate the, the time today. I actually would love to have you on again and uh, we can talk about some other things uh, related to, to cooking and everything plant-based. But, uh, but for now, let me just say you are an absolute plant-based rock star chef. And so, so I'm so grateful for everything that you've created uh, with Ruby. Um, so many people are living healthier, uh, funner, uh, and um and healthier lives because of because of what you guys have done there so thank you so much well thank you rip we really appreciate everything you've done and your family the amount of contribution to the space is just um you know overwhelming it it speaks for 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 uh, itself and the the world is made better because of uh these efforts and because there's a lot of people out there you know lift lifting this up and um it's uh, amazing to see this whole movement really emerge and evolve and uh, become very mature at this point. So thank you again for all the work that, that you've done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it is amazing how this movement is chugging along, man. It is turning into a bullet train, baby. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's like undeniable. I think we have a different type of momentum, a different type of support, even institutional support now. Yeah. Um, which makes it a much different equation uh, in terms of, uh, you know, just trying to, to make it a much better system for everyone. Yeah. All right. We got to sign off. So let's, I want you to repeat after me. All right. Peace. Peace. Here, get, do the hand sign. Peace. Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plan strong. Give me a fist. Plan strong. Boom. Boom. <laughs> When it comes to creating a plant-strong kitchen, Ken has got it going on in spades. No doubt you're probably inspired to learn more about Ruby and the work that Ken and his team is doing over there. If you are, just visit their site at ruby.com. That's R-O-U-X-B-E.com to learn more about all their classes and their programs. We appreciate all of the work that they're doing to improve health and the quality of the food in hospitals, schools, restaurants, and kitchens around the world. I don't know about you, but I am hungry and I'm inspired to go make that red lentil dal over some barley where I fold in some spinach and arugula right this second. The Plan Strong Podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Cryl Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.